From the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, we face risk. Risk from financial markets, from public health crises, from merely being human. Learning how to navigate lives filled with risk and its sibling uncertainty has fueled philosophers, writers, and scientists alike. It's also the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Gerd Gigerenzer, an expert on uncertainty and risk. Gigerenzer is the director of the Harding Center for Risk Literacy at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin and partner of Simply Rational, the Institute for Decisions. He's also the author of a number of books, including Calculated Risks, Gut Feelings, The Intelligence of the Unconscious, and Risk Savvy, How to Make Good Decisions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gerd. Yeah, I'm, I'm honored to be on your program. How do you define risk in the work you do? Now, uh, so the term risk has many meanings. One is to distinguish situations of risk from those of uncertainty. So a situation of risk would be like uh, playing the lottery uh, or the roulette where you know the entire state spatial. Nothing unexpected can ever happen. Mm-hmm. And uncertainty is uh, are those situations where which are outside the grasp of probability theory. So where new things may happen, where you don't know all the alternatives or their consequences. So an example would be whom to marry. There can be surprises. Uh, where to invest your money. And so I'm doing both sides of this. Uh, topics. So for risk, uh, it's very important to understand probability theory Mm -hmm. and statistics. And for uncertainty, it's very important to understand smart heuristics or rules of thumb. So you've been an advocate for risk literacy. That, you know, we, we, we often hear discussions of general literacy or quantitative literacy. I think you're one of the few people I've heard describe risk literacy. Could you talk a little bit about why you believe that's important and what that is? Oh, uh, I think risk literacy is today as important as the ability to read and write. So literacy in the narrow sense was in the last century. We have managed to teach almost everyone how to read and write, more or less. But we have not managed to teach risk literacy. That is, to deal and understand numbers, and also to understand and control our emotions that relate to risk literacy. For instance, our anxieties and fears. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is that that has been uh under under explored is not the right word, but just why have we not paid enough attention to to this issue of, of risk literacy? Rosemary, that's a good question. I always dream about that. <laughs> why could that be the case? So the facts are we teach our children the mathematics of certainty, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, beautiful theories that are of not much relevance. 
for the rest of our lives, at least for most people. Compared to the mathematics of uncertainty, that is statistical thinking, which would be of much importance mm -hmm. to everyone in the societies. And that ranges from understanding what a 30% chance of rain means, to what a DNA test means, what a positive mammogram means. And in uh, my research, I have shown again and again that not only most patients don't understand health statistics, but also most doctors do not understand health statistics in their own field. You talked a little bit about uh, both the sort of tension between the rational and reason and the emotional or listening to your gut. Can you give us some ideas on how you balance those two? Uh, you, you talk about the best results come sometimes from considering less information and listening to your gut, but clearly there has to be some kind of balance. Can you talk a little bit that, about that and maybe give us an example? Okay. So... Um Let's first say what gut feelings are. I use it synonymous with intuition. And intuition is based on years and years of experience. And it uh, has two major characteristics. You quickly feel what you should do or not do, but you cannot explain it. So uh, a good uh, expert in sports or in science has intuitions. I could not do my research without intuitions. And then I need also methods, like statistics, to find out whether the intuitions are correct. That's what should be a normal way to look at intuition. But we live in a society where many people are suspicious of intuition mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. even blame every kind of disaster to intuitions. So intuition is not a sixth sense. It's not something arbitrary. It is not what only women have. We mm -hmm. also have intuitions. And if you work with experienced um, sports players, yeah, if they wouldn't listen to your intuition, they wouldn't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like, as you describe in intuition, it's just a synthesis of, of data. That's what your experience effectively reflects, right? It has one specific feature that's different from conscious thinking. Mm. You cannot explain it. Mm. And that's the, uh, and we live in a society which uh, goes away from uh, achievement, performance, to more and more uh, justification. So after the fact, so you may ruin your own company as long as you can explain it. Usually that's with someone else who is the cause. <laughs> but if you have good intuitions and your company profits from that, that's considered suspicious. Mm. And certainly in uh, large companies and as opposed to family-run companies where they really have a vision of of uh, performance. So I've worked with large uh, companies who are in the stock market and in uh, direct interviews 
uh, when I asked the leaders uh, up to the, the executives uh, of the companies, how often is an important professional decision that you or your group takes at the end a gut decision? The answer, the average answer is in 50% of the cases. <laughs> and I emphasize on the end, because before you look at data and more data, data, but data doesn't tell you all the time what you should do. And if you then use your own experience and you feel you should not do this, you know, that's a gut decision. How, how do you respond or reconcile the sort of anti-data, anti-science, the, the people that the distrust that people have of data and science? You talked about blaming intuition, but there's a certainly in the states there's a large movement of distrust in things like global warming, um, other scientific things. How do you how do you address address the distrust that that often comes? today against uh, data and science? So first we do have less of that in Germany than you have in the US. And the best means would be better education. So uh, education for everyone and mm -hmm. education in, again, in statistical thinking. So about evidence and also in the psychology. Uh, that means, why do people not believe in global warming? Because most likely their friends don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. And if you start now reading and trusting data, then you lose your friends. <laughs> so th these mechanisms are in place. And we need to basically mentally vaccinate young people already that this will be their future. And it's a part of the enlightenment, which we still don't have, huh? that you learn to stand up to scientific values. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Today, we're focusing on risk and uncertainty with expert Gerd Gigerenzer of the Max Planck Institute. Uh, so you you are someone who has uh, made communicating risk and uncertainty sort of well sort of part of your mission. And then we were just talking about this issue of you know vaccinating society so they understand you know science. What role do you think journalists play in helping people embrace statistical thinking? Because I think one thing you know as as someone who has been a journalist and who uh, you know who went through grad school. Stats and statistical thinking can be, really, can be really difficult to wrap your brain around if you once when you're sort of thrown into it. But once you're in it, I think it, it can come pretty easily. But there sort of seems to be this sort of, again, um, particularly in the U.S., there, there seems to be at moments this, this uh, distrust of it, as Richard um, suggested. How much of that do you think journalists have to play in sort of in either propagating that or, or changing that? No. Um so many journalists have no education in risk literacy. Mm -hmm. So the, my experience, I train journalists myself mm -hmm. and uh, have done this every year. And um, so they need to learn the basics. Just And also, in my opinion, uh, what you need as a journalist is not so much. You don't need a degree in statistics, but you need to understand a few basic concepts. Mm -hmm. So let me start mm -hmm. with one. One is the difference between an absolute risk and a relative risk. Mm -hmm. So when in the UK, uh, in the UK there is every other year a so-called 
contraceptive pill scare. And the most famous one went this way. The uh, UK um, uh, Institution for uh, Safety and Medicines declared that the study had shown that women who take the pill of the third generation increase their risk of a uh, thrombosis double, so 100%. So what do we do? If you read that, 100%, that's as certain as it can be, isn't it? Yeah. Now, many British women thought so and got in panic and stopped taking the pill, which led to unwanted pregnancies and abortions. So how much is 100%? The study had shown that out of every 7,000 British women who took the pill of the previous generation, one had a thrombosis, which increased to two among the women who took the pill of the third generation. So one to two out of every 7,000 is one in 7,000. That's the absolute risk mm -hmm. increase. But you also can communicate as a 100% increase from one to two. That's a relative risk increase. Relative risk frightened people. And in this case, the single news led to the following result in the, uh, in the year, in the, in the, during the next year. So there were about 13,000 more abortions in England and Wales than usual. Mm. And that's a simple distinction between a relative and absolute risk. And you could teach it every teenager. And in this case, uh, those who had most abortions were the teenagers. Wow. They don't learn the simple distinction in school. They may learn all kinds of things that are not so relevant for their lives. And here is a good example how lack of statistical education causes uh, not only panic and anxiety, but also abortions. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the, the things that you said in terms of the, the th topics that you would introduce in school, the idea of absolute risk versus relative risk. So the, the importance essentially of understanding the baseline to which change is, right. is occurring. Yeah. Can, can you talk about what are some of the other things that you think are, would be important lessons that would be taught, taught early? Okay, so relative absolute risk is an easy example. Another thing is the ambiguity of single event probabilities. Mm. So let me give you an example. If you uh, see on your smartphone that tomorrow there is a 30% chance of rain, what does that mean? So we've done a large study in many countries and asked pedestrians what it means. So I live in Berlin. Most Berliners think a 30% chance of rain means that it will rain tomorrow in 30% of the time. That is seven to eight hours. Others okay. believe it will rain in 30% of the region that is most likely not where I live. <laughs> Most New Yorkers we have asked, they think the Berliners have no idea. It means something third, namely, it will rain in 30% of the days on which this announcement has been made. That is most likely not at all tomorrow. So are people stupid? No. <laughs> I'm saying this because many of my colleagues in behavioral economics or psychology think so. Right. 
Uh, it's again a very simple rule that everyone could learn. So always ask percentage of what? And the reference class is not defined in the statements. So it could be time, it could be region, it could be days, it could be something else. One woman in uh, Athens told us, I know what 30% chance of rain means. Three meteorologists think it rains, and seven, <laughs> not. <laughs> this problem has a very simple solution. Teach everyone, always ask about the reference class. There's nothing wrong, miswired in our brain. Yeah? So the US has a program which uh, is called nudging, which assumes that we are all risk illiterate. There is no hope for us because risk illiterate is like visual illusions and it causes massive uh, da damage in wealth and health. And therefore, the government needs to step in and nudge us like sheep to mm -hmm. where we would really be and which we do not know. This is not my vision of a society. We should teach children and adults to become risk literate rather than nudge them. And it's not a, a big thing. It's easy. Mm -hmm. So a single event probability issue, you just give a few examples and people start seeing the thing. So the, um, in, in, in medicine, it's, uh, it is very often the case that uh, you get the single event probabilities. So. You have a, so here's a case. A friend of mine is a psychiatrist in Virginia, and he uh, used to, to prescribe his patients antidepressiva, so uh, Prozac at this time. And he always told them that they have side effects in the sexual domain. So he told them, if you take uh, the pill, then I, I need to tell you that there is a certain chance of uh, uh, of getting uh, whatever it is, so impotent, or, or you lose your libido, or something, some problem with your sexual life. Hmm? Uh, so let's assume he said a 20% chance of that. Hmm? And the patients were not happy to, to uh, hear that, <laughs> and, uh, but also didn't ask questions, because they don't know how to ask questions about statistics. When he learned about our research on, on the, about risk communication, he noticed he's giving them a single event probability of a 20% chance of a problem. Hmm? And, the, and patients can think about anything about that. Hmm? So he then taught, uh, he changed his communication to frequencies. A mm. frequency always conveys a reference class. So he said, out of every uh, 10 of my patients, to have a problem in the sexual domain. That made his patients less unhappy because if you are a person who thinks always lives on the sunny side of the life, it's the other two, so it's not you. <laughs> While, uh, he had asked, how did you understand that before? And many had said, oh, I thought it means that in two out of Every 10 sexual encounters, something goes wrong. Uh... You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Gerd Gigerenzer, director of the Harding Center for Risk Literacy at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development. 
One of the things that in listening to you and, and watching some of your videos, you're, it, the, the notion of telling stories to make people understand data is really important to you. Can you talk about uh, sort of your method for just sort of explain what you're doing with us here today in terms of talk, using storytelling to, to help people understand statistics and data better? Yeah. Here's an example. So uh, I work with doctors, with medical departments to help them to educate medical students in statistical thinking. And I emphasize statistical thinking, not statistics. So to learn to think. And medical students typically have bio, um, bio statistics, which enters one ear here and exits immediately <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> one of the reasons is that the, uh, these biostatisticians uh, do not connect the statistics with the content. Mm -hmm. And one way to connect this is to give a story like the one about the contraceptive pill or the 30% chances of rain. These are stories which stick in your mind mm -hmm. and they anchor the concept and from there on you can then go and channelize and explain the underlying principle like this is a single event probability by definition it has no reference class and people think in the reference classes so they make up something and everyone something different like the psychiatrist who thinks about his patients is a reference class, but the patients don't think about the other patients, they think about themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is why stories are important, but you shouldn't stay with stories. You need to tell them the principles so they can channelize things. Mm -hmm. I think that's a powerful idea to, to use stories to anchor concepts. That's, mm -hmm. a, that, that's really effective. You know, when, when, when I've read some of your, your work and you've talked about these ideas of the, the basics, you've, you've, you also talk a lot about the problems and the challenges that, that patients have when they're receiving information about the result, results of screening studies and that it's, it's something that's fundamentally misunderstood by patient and physician alike. So, you know, if you do get a positive result from a, a mammogram or some other, other screening test, can you, can you talk a little bit about how that's often misunderstood and what are better ways of describing it? Okay. Cancer screening is a very interesting area because it's about a situation where you, by definition, have no ailment, no disease, and you're healthy, and you could actually think, as opposed to a car accident. Mm -hmm. And uh, false positive is an important concept here. Uh, if every test has false positives, and therefore, no positive test result is certain because it could be a false positive, a false alarm. And mammography is another very good test. It causes lots of false positives. And therefore, if a woman tests positive in a screening mammogram, it's more likely that she does not have breast cancer than that she has breast cancer. The usual way this is conveyed is called Bayes' rule. So named after Thomas Bayes, who allegedly has invented the rule, but we don't really know that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's uncertain. Anyhow, and Bayes' rule works with conditional probabilities. Conditional probabilities are hard to understand for most people. So we have developed a technique 
so that doctors and patients can understand a test result. Hmm. So shall I do a kind of uh, experiment with the three of you? Sure. Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll use mammography screening and first give you the information as it's taught today in conditional probabilities. And I hope I will confuse you. <laughs> I'm sure you will. I give you the same information in natural frequencies. That's a technique that we, develop, we uh, develop, and I hope you will see through. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Good. Okay. Assume you conduct the mammography screening. What you know about uh, the situation is that there is a 1% chance that a woman will have breast cancer, if a woman has breast cancer, there's a 90% chance that she will test positive. If she does not have breast cancer, there is a 9% chance that she will test positive. In the, in the words of medicine, the prevalence is 1%, mm -hmm. the sensitivity is 90%, and the false positive rate is 9%. Okay, that's what you know. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a woman who just tested positive. It's screening. You know nothing else about her. And she wants to know from you, doctor, do I have now breast cancer? Or how likely is it? 99%, 90%, 50 please tell me. What do you tell this woman? So if my experiment works, <laughs> your minds are now confused. You have fog in your minds. You don't really know what to do with this 90%, 9%, and so on. Huh? Is it true? Uh, it's true for me. I'm not sure about John. <laughs> it's, true, it's true for the journalists. Well, let's talk to the statistician the, in the, the room. The, the statistician teaches base theorem <laughs> okay. and, and uses this kind of example, so I'm going to, I'm going to recuse Abstain. myself. <laughs> You've confused jo uh, Richard and I, though. Okay. And uh, if I do this with doctors, in this case, gynecologists who should know the answer. Yeah, absolutely. really confused. Hmm? Most of them think it's not sure, but something like 90% or 80% sure. Okay, now here's the solution to the same thing. The solution is, works in the same way uh, as we before replaced relative risk with absolute risk. Now we are replacing conditional probabilities with natural frequencies. Natural frequency means the following. You start with a number, not with one person, say 100 women who mm -hmm. go screening. And now we translate these hard-to-understand conditional probabilities into absolute numbers. That's the only trick. So, there are 100 women. We expect that one of them has cancer. That was the prevalence. Mm -hmm. And this one will likely test positive because of the 90% sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Among the 99 who do not have cancer, we expect another 9 to test positive. Mm. So we have 9 plus 1 who test positive. How many of these 10 women do actually have cancer? Now most see the answer, 1 out of 10. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See? That's natural frequencies. Yeah, yeah. So when I uh, give, you, give you an idea, I, I did these experiments with real gynecologists who have the continuing uh, medical education. They are mostly in their 40s and 50s, and they need to get points to renew their license. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the, uh, these are 90-minute training sessions, I gave them the problem, 
improbabilities, as that's been taught. And they had four, uh, this was a kind of system where there are only four uh, answers, and I just spread them as far apart as possible. One answer was a 90% chance that she has actually cancer, 81 or 10 or 1, so everything. The, the, the answers were just spread about all alternatives, mostly uh, in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. So that shows you that medical education is not working. Mm-hmm. And the, even those doctors who should know, this is these are not urologists, these are gynecologists, yeah, don't know the answer. And then teaching them natural frequencies, and at the end of the 90 minutes, I gave them the problem, the old problem again, yeah, inconditional pr- probabilities, but they had now learned with other examples to translate them, natural frequencies. Then everything changed. And 87% of the, it was 160 gynecologists now understood. There were a few hopeless cases. <laughs> Eight minutes hmm, for teaching them many, many more things. So it can be done, but it is not done. So we work with the Charité, the major hospital in Berlin, to change the education. And uh, the doctors we have studied in the U.S. are equally ignorant about mm. health statistics. Mm-hmm. So in your in your book, Risk Savvy, one thing you wrote was, if reason conflicts with a strong emotion, don't try to argue, and list a conflicting and stronger emotion. And I, that was a that was a very powerful statement when I read that. And does this suggest that that arguments based on data and evidence will never cause change? <laughs> I mean, I, I, there was a little but bit of despair that I had when I read that. It does not. I just gave you an example. <laughs> this was a particular story. The context was 9/11. Mm. And I had done an analysis about what Americans did after 9-11. So mm. we know that many of them stopped flying. Yeah. And the question was, uh, did they stay home or did they jump into their cars? I looked at the uh, transportation statistics and found that uh, driving in cars increased for about 12 months up to 5%. And increased most on the long distance travel. So people, a certain proportion of people uh, uh, went in their cars. That uh, caused an estimated uh, 1,600 Americans to lose their lives on the road in their attempt to avoid the risk of flying. Hmm. So that was the context. And the lesson is, of course, I call this a dread risk. So people fear situations where many uh, people die uh, at one point of time. Mm-hmm. They don't fear. It's very uh, difficult to elicit anxiety if as many or more people die distributed over the year, mm-hmm. yeah. like smoking or car driving. So it's not about dying. It's about dying together socially. Mm-hmm. That's the big yeah. fear. Uh, it was an unconscious fear, mm-hmm. yeah. which you can work out. And then... When I published Risk Savvy, uh, a, I think it was a doctor, a U.S. doctor wrote me, um, Dear Dr. Gigerens, I gave your book to my wife because she, she has this, uh, yeah, this anxiety from flying. And I showed here that so many people died, but it was to no 
and I had no success with that. <laughs> that was his story about his wife. Yeah? And in that case, obviously, rational arguments don't help. And it's, and it, it, I think that's there are more couples yeah, where rational arguments don't help. <laughs> and so I suggested to him, if uh, reason doesn't help, then often invoking a competing emotion may help. For instance, they had children. Um, you could uh, basically point out that now driving long distance, because one has uh, anxiety for terrorists, uh, um, that this puts your own children at risk. Do you want that? Uh. Mm -hmm. Have a paternal emotion. <laughs> the anxiety of travel. So that was the context. Well, Gerd, thank you so much uh, for being here today. That's all the time we have for this episode. It's been a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I liked it very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.